Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. Hello! From the Next Reels Film Board, this is Tommy Hansom with an important announcement. The following podcast includes movie audio clips that contain unbleeped profanity. Such profanity may include... Damn. Hell. Nuts. Butterf***. Ah!
McGee, Doodle, Captain Fuck, and Toot Toot. Here comes the diarrhea parade. Listening discretion is advised. This is the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey! And we spoil movies tonight on the show. A tale of a young girl's journey into preteen fight club. It's the Spirit Brothers time travel romp, Predestination. What if I could put him in front of you? The man that ruined your life. Would you kill him? By the time you listen to this, seven years will have passed. Here you are, at the beginning of your new life. It can be overwhelming knowing the future. So what, you're a cop? I'm a temporal agent. We prevent crime before it takes place. What is it? It's a time machine. Don't ever exceed the jump limit. It can be problematic. If you ever want to stop the fizzle bomber, you'll never get another chance. Time, it catches up with us all. What's that got to do with me? You're the only one given to the world through a paradox. You must lay the seeds for the future. I know where I come from, but where do all you zombies come from? What if I could put him in front of you? Would you kill him? Andy, I've been looking forward to predestination uh, this whole time travel since since we decided to do a time travel series. I've been looking forward to doing this movie. Well, I think this was predestined to be in our time travel series. The minute we came up with the idea of doing a time travel series, <laughs> we both had this at the top of our list. I, it's a little bit low hanging fruit to go for the predestination joke. I don't care. Th- this was pre- <laughs> <laughs> this movie. It it absolutely broke me the first time I saw it because I could not figure out how they were going to make this this whole thing work. And by the end of the movie, once I did figure out, I was baffled that I bought into it. And that, I think, is the real magic of predestination. When the time travel mechanic and the story, the narrative, all of that hits you and the actual film itself is enough of a grounding, enough of an entertaining foundation that you actually believe the nonsense that that they're putting forth, that you don't stop and think too hard about it. Although I have to say, I when I think too hard about it, I just go into vapor lock. So that's got to be a good sign. <laughs> well, I think I think it's one of those things where if you're looking at um at the at, i mean much like going back to interstellar what we talked about last week if you're looking at time as another element of uh, a way to kind of pinpoint something and if you look at it as something that i mean the nature of time travel if you've if you've latched on to that nature of time travel creating loops like this theoretically are possible right i mean it's that's the kind of the the whole crux of something that's so complicated as time travel is this ability to create this wacky loop that could never exist outside of itself 
And I find it so absolutely fascinating. And what I think is is more exciting is that the movie does not only give you this this real complicated look at this this time loop that only exists because of itself, but it also gives you a really interesting uh, story idea about um, you know killing uh, some people to prevent bigger uh, accidents, much like the whole. You know, if you're driving a car and you're you have to avoid something, do you swerve left and and kill five people, or do you swerve right and kill three people? Yeah, that's a the, and the trolley problem, right? So the story exists in itself, uh, which is fascinating. But then they take this whole this concept of the the trolley problem, like you were saying, who do you kill? How many people? And they loop that into this time travel story. And then on top of that, you have some really stellar performances and i think all of that blended together creates a really fabulous film sarah snook is this is a a career defining performance for her i mean she was i i did not know anything of sarah snook before this movie but she she's fantastic and not just because she does the uh she she does the gender makeup but because she just is terrific oh she's great i don't know if i had seen her in anything before this um she's just one which is which is the gag right i mean you you have to have somebody that you don't know to make this movie work right you you have to really you have to have a face that is not recognizable uh to to make the to make the gimmick really play yeah and she had been in stuff like she she wasn't a complete unknown but it's not like a long list of credits you know she'd done in some tv she'd yeah. done some smaller uh, indie films and stuff before she did this and and i think um i i would like to say that this film really really shot her to a place where she was uh, you know one of the top people because i think her performance is so strong here it didn't happen but it certainly hasn't stopped her from being busy the 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 themes of the film i should say that the genre is a little bit of a genre buster right it's got a it's got a little bit of noir it's got a healthy dose of sci-fi uh it, it's got some action and of course it's got the time travel mechanic and, and a little bit of the uh horror thriller you know action at the beginning and the end it, it's funny as non-linear as the film is the narrative or sort of the genre presentation is very linear uh where we start with this sort of uh, noir backstory that's very long. And I think if there's anything that's going to make it make this film appear a bit impenetrable, it's the first 45 minutes, which is all I guess you say the whole film is backstory. But the first 45 minutes is a lot of storytelling. Well, and that is uh, a struggle. And I guess to that end, you really need to buy into this story that you're getting into. And to that end, I feel like the performances for me really work. Like I really enjoy everything happening with Ethan Hawke and Sarah Snook in the beginning and this whole conversation they're having in the bar. And then the backstory, the flashbacks that we learn about kind of how she uh, got to where she is, how she transitioned to be a man um, all the way up to the moment where um, Ethan Hawke's character says, if I could put him in front of you, uh, would you kill him? And Yeah. yeah, that's a very large chunk of exposition um, and backstory to fill in before we really even get into the time travel story. And then once we get to the time travel story, it doesn't strictly become an action film. It still is very uh, convoluted 
drama, I find, and uh, mm-hmm. but in a way where I find it just mesmerizing. So it is. It's a really interesting story construction. It moves much more into this thriller zone, right? Where you're, you've got, you've got to make certain times. You got to be at a place at a certain time. You're going to see a thing, and you're going to do a thing. We're going to stop a bomber, and it's, it's just one after another. And and uh, uh, I find that really fascinating. The the other piece is, do you remember? I and I was trying to to piece it together as I was watching it over the weekend. Do you remember the moments of? Uh, that your mind was blown the first time you watched this movie? It's 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 all of the moments where you realize that the character we're watching is the same person. Like when when the unmarried mother goes back the first time with the barkeep and is all set to go um, kill the man who who left her, only to be bumped into by Jane. And that moment of realization of like, oh, wait a minute, I'm that guy. I'm the one yes. who left you. And that whole mind-blowing moment of, whoa, okay, hold on. Her body parts, we, we learned the whole thing about how she had both body parts. She had a baby that had to take out all her female parts, and now her male parts are all working. Whoa, she just created herself, her own baby yeah. with herself. Like that was my first uh, mind blow moment. And then the second one was when I saw her, I should say him, um, now as a time agent, as the one who was pursuing um, the fizzle bomber and realized, oh, wait, she, it, he is the one who gets burned and becomes Ethan Hawke and realizing that this whole thing is one person. And and then I think by that point, by the time we realized that that Ethan Hawke is also the fizzle bomber, I don't think that I was as surprised anymore because they'd already kind of pulled that rug out from under me a couple times. Um, I still found it very effective, but I wasn't as surprised. Well, and this is where this is the the uh, my sort of thesis that that the first moment when uh, uh, John meets Jane at the school and you realize that he is in fact talking to the female version of himself. Uh, across time, it, it redefines right in the middle of the film. It redefines the rules of the world. the The first part of the movie, you could be watching this movie and you think you're watching. I mean, it, it could be just another Stephen King bar scene, right? That's going to end in a, a a twist of sort of thriller horror, whatever. Um, but it's uh, you know, it's it it's just another stranger telling a story tale, and then we see that the strangers, we're actually going to be starting to interweave or interleave into their lives, um, you know, as as audience members in a new way. And it becomes so, so much darker because it challenges so many of our cultural beliefs, right? Beliefs around gender reassignment and pansexuality. And, uh, you know, these, these characters are... Um, or this character, this one character played by Snook and Hawk are, you know, they're, they're at the top of their game. They feel like the world has, has always sort of been out, you know, out to, to betray them, out not to let them have their due. Uh, so this story ends up being kind of the ultimate tale of narcissism that they love themselves so much that they actually get to love themselves and literally make a baby, uh, Which is with them. themselves. Which is like, them. <laughs> 
which is them. Yes. I mean, it is the ultimate narcissistic loop. And I find that just diabolical. I, 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 I it's, it's fascinating. I feel like I, I, uh, you know, I see something new in it every time I watch it. It really is a twister. And I think that's what makes it so fun. And, um, I don't need it to turn into something that is like this action movie through time as he's trying to stop, top him, stop himself. I mean, that's time cop. This is a much, uh, a much twistier tale. This is what I would say is a fantastic representation of uh, what great science fiction can be, where you take these concepts of science fiction and use it to, to put forth interesting uh, theories and themes. That I find a much more exciting uh, and energizing use of science fiction and storytelling than is so often the case, like when you're watching something like Independence Day. I don't know why I'm going with that one, but you you know what I mean. It's just just <laughs> finding something that is just a little more uh, just standard, like aliens and spaceships sort of uh, science fiction film. Uh, so let's talk about Robertson a little bit. We talked about uh, the barkeep and the unmarried or uh, mother, um, and then we have Robertson. And Robertson is this sort of. Um, well, he he knows everything, right? I mean, it seems to be that he is the one who who kind of knows about the loop that the loop is going on. Is he controlling it? Is he guiding it in in your eye? Well, that's it's an interesting thing to to say, and especially and we should just bring up the fact that the title "Predestination" is this idea of of you know. God having, uh, you know, preordained everything, right? It's the whole paradox of yeah, free will. Good, bad, evil, yeah, sin, right. everything's been preordained. Right, and it's the whole, yeah. it's this whole battle that people have, the idea that humans, ha do humans have free will or has God preplanned everything? Um, and the nature of this film really falls into that. And the conversation comes up a number of times too, right? Where we have, where we have the unmarried mother, um, asking the barkeep, do I have any choice? Of course you have choice. Of course, they just keep going through the same loop anyways. It really doesn't matter. Right. Um, but, you know, bringing in Robertson to the equation, I find interesting because it does feel a little bit like he is kind of the God character of the story. He is the one that kind of, I mean, he, he seems to know what's going on. He seems to be the one who uh, acknowledges that um, that the barkeep is making un- whatever they're called, unlicensed jumps and, um, but doesn't kill him. Like, I mean, earlier, um, you know, he says, you know, you're going to be terminated. Your life will be terminated if you do something you're not supposed to. But instead he's just given this, this briefcase that's supposed to be decommissioned when he goes and stops somewhere. And that's kind of the end of it. But, um, but it feels like Robertson may have planned the whole thing. Like maybe he, purposefully gave him one that when it was uh, supposed when the time machine was supposed to decommission it really just kind of doesn't allowing um john ethan Hawke's character to kind of continue on with his life as the fizzle bomber um i don't know i find it a really fascinating line of thought the part that bugs me in regard to the time travel mechanic is if you took robertson out would the loop stop but see, that's the nature of loops. Like, yeah, that's the curse of the paradox. Is, yeah, right. Nothing sure. can really get removed. I mean, if you if you look at it from a, a pure um, linear 
chronological line, the very first time any of these people exists is when Ethan Hawke's character pops into a um, uh, out in front of a um, uh, an orphanage and drops off a baby. That's like you know, back in 1945. That would be like the very first thing, uh, the first existence of, and it's two of them, two versions of himself at the same time. Yes. Yeah. So it's it's like it's it's this is one of those movies where you just can't talk. You can't look at it as a linearly structured story. You have to look at it in that interstellar. I'm behind the bookcase type of time world where time is a thing that you can pop in and out of. And I think the more I've been looking at these time time travel movies, it really does like that interstellar way of looking at time where it's that temporal um, connection to everything that we do in our lives um, feels so important in in the crux of it. And uh, I feel like if you have time travel, by nature, time loops are in an, an inevitable element. Yes, that is so true. But what's interesting to me is I don't think uh, Robertson was in the original story. This was uh, based on a, a short story written by Robert Heinlein in a day because that guy was amazing. <laughs> wow. And uh, and it actually is the story of the un- unmarried mother and the bartender and all the temporal bureau, the time board, it's all in there. But I think Robertson, it's been a long time since I've read that, but I think uh, Robertson, I think he was not a part of it. That's the the part, really. That's the crux of the thing that, that bugs me, that I don't think they needed that character. I think they told a lot of story in a in a really interesting way, and that dropping that character they didn't need and i think it actually makes the time travel part of it it makes the loop even uh, sort of more consistent because you don't have that lingering question of hey if you took that guy out would the loop stop the the way the story originally um, dropped that you know you don't need the guy in there the loop is consistent on its own uh, and and I don't that is I love having the question, um, you know, all sorts of questions in uh, about the time loop. I love looking at it, but I don't love that particular question because I think of all the stories that we've talked about. This is the one that that ironically falls apart the least. If you buy into time travel, this paradox is uh, is, uh, for lack of a better word, the most solid. Well, what do you think is the. The the pieces of Robertson uh, where he's connected that would uh, make the whole loop crumble if you pulled him out because he he is manipulating the bartender right he's manipulated as a boss right he's saying you you are he keeps giving him those sorts of nudges and in that regard actually he may be a, a more interesting devil on your shoulder than God character right because the things he's doing push the bartender forward. They push him forward as the time agent to keep doing these things that allow the loop to perpetuate, right? And so um, I I guess maybe the thing I'm reacting to is I I don't like the manipulation of it because I think that if we're going to have a conversation about free will and lack of free will, that you better not have a, a third party manipulating it or you no longer have an argument about free will. It's no longer free will. That's interesting. I guess I'd, I need to look at it again from Robertson's uh, really focus on him and, and kind of his point of view of the whole story and see how 
much it fits in to my thinking of uh, of it. And if if you could pull it, and it would be fine. Because I mean, he's obviously you know assigning. I mean, it's these time agents, so obviously there are other assignments that Robertson yeah. is having um, having Ethan Hawke's character go and do. Um, other than trying to stop the fizzle bomber, although it always seems to to boil down to the fizzle bomber, it always seems to boil down to the fizzle bomber. And I think that there was some question in the book, like before the movie came out in the short story, that maybe the other time agents are actually all just other loops of John. Interesting. You know, speaking to Robertson, that does bring up one element that I noticed that I felt it was a little minor flaw although i'm sure you could explain it away but there's a point when when uh, jane is having you know she's talking about her flashback about how she was in this in this space program um to uh, I, I guess to be an uh, you know a, a wife to a an astronaut space corps um but then she is booted from the program and you know she doesn't really know why she's just booted and has to go do some other stuff until Robertson comes back in her life. But we do have a break in her point of view of her flashback, where all of a sudden we have Robertson looking at her through glass, talking to the doctor about her and saying, nobody's told her. And they're like, no, he's like, well, don't tell her then. And it's just, it is kind of a moment where all of a sudden we're no longer in in uh, Sarah's point of view of Jane um, during a flashback, which is a little... Right incorrect as far as storytelling because there's really no way she would have known that although i guess you could explain it away i mean later she learns that potentially when robertson comes back into her life i guess we have performed a more detailed physical examination of the patient (sighs) i see you do know that this will disqualify her. You've not told the recruit? No. Don't. I'll take care of it. And then he doesn't tell her. She doesn't find out until after the surgery when the doctor tells her. Right. While he's smoking a cigarette. So if there's, I mean, it's just another sort of bullet uh, supporting the devil on your shoulder, you know, position of Robertson. That that may be, but regardless, it is uh, flawed storytelling. If she's you know during a flashback, all of a sudden we jump out of her point of view into yes. into his point of view. So, yeah. Well, I mean, you're right. I also wasn't listening to you the first time, so I needed <laughs> you to say it again. <laughs> I see how it is. I see. I was so excited. I was just, you know, I was a dog with a bone, man. I just wanted you to to bite on something I said. (laughs) Okay. All of that being said, Um, the Space Corps stuff looks great. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love that the production design was so, so cool. Uh, You know, with the weird VR, like, trippy kaleidoscope helmets that they had to wear and and uh you know putting these the the women through their uh the paces uh was just really great i think it's uh, you know i i made the fight club joke but really i think it's just great that everywhere she goes she ends up in a fist fight with somebody it's i it was very interesting for a sci-fi time travel movie to take place from 1945 to the early 90s you know that's kind of the stretch mm-hmm. of time that we're jumping around in it is, although that is an interesting thing they didn't change from the book, the book or the short story, it, it, which is, 
a novelty, I, you know, um, you know, since it was written uh, in night and published in 1959, right? So it was. It, you would expect the the usual strategy is to take this thing and modernize it by putting it into you know the future and. Uh, if anything, I think that that is a, a real sign of a brilliant adaptation that they didn't. The story was good enough. The story was good enough, and they they um, they carried some of those these elements as sacrosanct that that they didn't need to mess with it. Well, and the Spirit Brothers, um, Michael and Peter, when they adapted it, I mean, you know, listening to them talk, it sounded like they did a straight adaptation. Like that was the first thing they did. They said the book was so good, they just took it and did a straight adaptation, just converting it basically to a screenplay. Um, and then realizing right away that it's only about a third the length a screenplay should be. And so then, of course, they had to flesh it out and everything. But but I love that they were so um, uh, taken by the actual story that they did work very diligently to keep everything from it in, in this version. So I think that's uh, fantastic. What comes first, the chicken or the egg? The rooster. Ah, shit. See, I'm terrible. That's the best you got. Yeah, That's well, not funny. I told you it wasn't. So you, you've read the original Heinlein material. Now, um, something that we uh, have kind of mentioned, but I mean, the film is, uh, you know, we have several unnamed characters in the film, right? We have the the barkeep, um, who is also the unmarried mother, um, and they are also both John Doe and Jane Doe. So it's kind of all of this. But in the original material, um, were there identities clarified or were they still pretty um you know did they have names or anything do you remember yeah i remember well i mean they didn't all have like individual name identities but they make a big deal about it toward the end you know when he's when he you know is thinking about that when he they use the line right all you zombies right he's when he's he's reflecting on all of the different people that he is that he gave birth to his you know father and mother and daughter and all the entire history uh of of his own narrative and so you know he he does an accounting a, like a character accounting of himself throughout the course of his travels from 1945 to 1993 uh and that's where he says you know i i know where i came from but where did all you zombies come from huh. right all all the others that are actually also him which is the the great sadness of the story well, it's interesting because, I mean, yeah, just looking at the, at least Wikipedia, they still have it just as the bartender and the unmarried mother. So obviously they they aren't um, the names. Yeah, aren't that's really what I mean. There. They don't have. Yeah, they don't yeah. have names. Right. That's what I mean. But there is an accounting of who the of, of the fact that there are these people and they are him. Right. Slash her. Well, but to that end, it's also interesting how the film keeps the identities pretty, um, pretty disguised, which I think is a nice way to to move forward where we really hide the identities of the other characters, right? We hide the identity of the fizzle bomber. It's always a mystery who this character is. We hide the identity of, of John when Jane meets him. We never, we never know who it is until we are John and we are with him when he bumps into her. Um, and I, and I, even just, you know, just the way that all of that stuff is played out, even when Ethan Hawke is later fighting the fizzle bomber, you never really see it. And it's done in a way that works really effectively, um, allowing us to 
kind of have these surprises, which I'm assuming is kind of the way that the book went. So to that end, I think it's a it's a it's a very smart adaptation, both both script wise, dialogue wise, but also visually. That's my memory of it. It's a really solid um, and committed adaptation. Yeah. So now let's get into getting Sarah to kiss herself. So yeah. Um, so apparently. It was a, a complex thing that they were trying to figure out how to do to make it work. And um, because there is a scene in the film where Jane and John kiss in the car, um, mm-hmm. in kind of the, the backseat of their uh, their car. And um, it was a complex shot that they needed to figure out how they could pull off to make sure that it would work. Because obviously moments like that are the things that are going to sell the realities of this world that they've been building and so, yeah, so uh, Sarah Snook talked about it, uh, saying, you know, it was it was rather difficult because I had to play myself and I had to kiss, uh, uh, you know, a double that looked like John. And then I had to play myself as John kissing a double that looked like Jane. Um, and then they all I think they also shot plate shots where she was just moving in to kiss nobody. And then they had to blend it all together to make it work. And it's just incredibly complex but you watch the scene and it's very effective it's done really well and i think it works really nicely where uh, or because of the fact that the makeup work that they did on sarah to look like john actually works really well it actually looks like a woman who may have gone through gender reassignment um and uh, it i mean it works i found it really effective and surprising did did you not for a, a hot second, stop and think, how did they get Leonardo DiCaprio in this movie? <laughs> I did not, actually. But now that you say that, I'll probably never not be able to think about that when yeah. I watch it. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do the deep scene dive, Andrew. Let's do it. Barkeep. He's te- telling the unmarried mother that she has the opportunity to kill the man who ruined his life. And then... We meet the time travel mechanic. This is uh, t- begins at about forty eight, forty seven. It's a long sequence we're talking about right. because this is really the introduction to the whole thing, uh, and uh, runs about ten minutes. Why? Uh, why are we locking into this particular point in the movie? Well, um, I think just you know, one time travel, and we finally get to see it after waiting for forty five minutes. Um, two, I, I think it sets up everything so nicely. Where here is this moment where. Uh, after learning everything that we've learned so far and learning how the unmarried mother got to the place that he's at in this particular bar, only to have this barkeep who seems to mysteriously know way more than he should about uh, everything going on, um, uh, gives the patron this opportunity to to kill the man that ruined his life. And, and and just to learn where that takes us and to see, oh, it takes us into time travel. Very exciting. It makes for a really exciting scene that really kind of kicks things off. No, so is that it? Story's over? Yeah, afraid so. The man that ruined my life is a ghost and so is my daughter. I guess at some point you just got to let things go. And have you? Fuck no. What if I could put him in front of you, huh? the man that ruined your life? And if I could guarantee you that you'd get away with it, would you kill him? In a heartbeat. I know where he is. 
I, uh, I, I think this is where we change the rules and uh, of the movie, of the world, that in fact we knew that this was kind of a time-traveling movie. We knew that because there are some rules around uh, the bartender and his place and how he ended up in that bar. But honestly, because the, the, the sort of flashback sequence is so long up to this point that you sort of forget that there's something else going on. And I think that's an actual gift of pacing uh, that some might find a little bit slow. For me, uh, that actually shakes me up every time when the movie goes into high gear and we see, uh, oh my gosh, we're actually going to leave the bar. We're going to leave the bar with our main characters here. We're going to introduce this this fish out of water story to this, um, you know, to this person who thought they were in control of the story. He thought they were going to win the the bottle, and in fact. They only knew a little tiny piece of the story. I think that is a wonderfully sort of jarring change in the middle of the movie, uh, and it, it sort of brings us back into it. When this moment happens, and then the rest of the film plays out, it it makes me realize that it's it's very much structured like a, a story like Noises Off, where the first half of the film you're setting up the story, and then the second half of the of the of the story. You're setting up all the bits and pieces that went on during that entire production, basically, right? Because I that's a I, that is a brilliant comparison to the this scene is the stage turning around. Yeah, for noises off for people who aren't familiar with the story, it it's a play, uh, people putting on a play, and the first half of it you see how it's supposed to go, all from the front side of the stage, and then uh, as Pete said, uh, the the second half of it you're watching the whole thing play out from the back and you're looking at all the chaos that's happening in this particular version of the production. And it's hilarious. This is not so hilarious, but it's exactly the same thing where you see uh, everything from Jane's perspective. And that's what I think is so strong about it because we're not coming at it from the perspective of Jane when she is the barkeep. We're coming at it from Jane early on in the story. Well, technically we're coming at it from, from um, the unmarried mother and then who flashes back to her life. And so we, like her, have no knowledge of the whole future that Ethan Hawke already knows. And I think that's a great way to play it because we get to see this whole thing play out from from somebody who has been, uh, you know, untainted from this time, uh, these temporal waves. And then once that's introduced, we start piecing it all together with the barkeep and realizing, oh, he's the one who now has to go in and steal the baby and drop it off at the orphanage. He's the one who has to go and take care of, um, you know, having him bump into her so that they meet and have this baby like it it becomes so much more fascinating and it makes that whole first half of the film that much more rich because you're able to kind of go back and go oh that's how that happened ah now i see it it makes for really effective and exciting storytelling it really does and what's wonderful about it is that as you say every single you know all of these characters are learning something new right even though compared to uh sarah ethan hawk is an expert Ethan Hawke, or the barkeep, is actually still learning things, too, as he moves forward. In this case, he'll end up learning them from uh, the uh, from Robertson, and then he'll end up learning more when he meets the fizzy bomber, the fizzle bomber. <laughs> fizzy bomber? <laughs> fizzy, fizzy bomber. He just throw, throws, shakes cokes and throws it at people. 
uh, when he meets the Fizzle Bomber at the very end and learn he's continuing to learn. And the, I, I think the unraveling of the um, uh, uh, of the story for us in that way to give every sort of principle and time something new for us to learn, even up to the very end of the movie. I think it's, it's very, very well structured. Um, camera is by, I can't believe it, Ben Knott, a.k.a. The Benot Spot. <laughs> right? Oh, We've my We've talked goodness. about Ben before, though. I know, but we never made the joke, we Andy. We did make the joke. <laughs> as far as you know. Oh, that's what's so great about it, is it's a joke that that's the paradox. On You'll never know. Ever. <laughs> so funny. It's still funny. It is. Oh, uh, the Banat spot. I don't. Okay. I honestly don't know when we talked about him, but I, I know we brought him up at some point. But we haven't talked about another film that he's done. No, because we haven't talked about Daybreakers, which is another film we should talk about. It's a it's a fun twist on the vampire genre. I think he's got a good hand on the camera, and it's a hard thing to frame just because of how you have to consider who needs to be in the frame, what needs to be in the frame. I mean, there's just a, it just strikes me as an enormous amount of, of structure and planning to make it look uh, actually effortless. Everything works really nicely, the way that it's, it's structured. And you mentioned earlier on that it does feel very much like a noir, and I think that's something that, that, um, that Ben takes into account building this uh this world is kind of keeping that look and uh the darker tones and the shadows and everything and it works really well in context of it but then you go back to something like the vibrance of the uh, of the space core scenes or even um even jane's childhood which uh still have some vibrance even if it's a little darker um and it's it still really uh rings uh, with much brighter tones so it's nice the way that they're allowed to kind of play with the tones throughout time. Uh, it, hair and makeup. So uh, there, I mean, er, there's good makeup throughout, and a whole team of people who made makeup happen. But Samantha Little has the uh, special effects makeup supervisor for uh, Sarah Snook. Mm. So I'm assuming she's the one behind the age makeup. I would assume so. Yeah. Just talking about the age makeup. Well, not when you the, say age makeup. I'm not the age makeup. I say age makeup. Why would I do that? It's like she makes her, yes, she makes her a man and I guess an old man. So (laughs) there you go. Speaking just about the gender makeup, what did you think? I I think it works really nicely. It's it still looks like Sarah Snook, but there's enough of a difference and and that that it feels like a slightly different person. And I I kind of buy it when she meets herself and, and doesn't completely realize that it's just a male version of herself. You know, it's not just like um, it's not like Jane, but in boys clothes. Right. Um, I, I like that there's enough of a hint that uh, makes it a little different. And I like that they actually took some elements of Ethan Hawke's look and kind of blended that into the unmarried mother look to kind of allow it to be that middle point between Jane and the barkeep. Yeah, uh, I I agree. And for me, I I feel like I didn't quite I didn't quite buy it when we first met her. And I think it was because or him in this case, because when he takes the glasses off, right? And and when the glasses are off, um, it, it was a little bit more, uh, it, it allowed me, I think, to, to bury myself a little bit more in trying to decipher who, what was going on. What are they trying to do? They're trying to trick me because I get that something's not real here. But then I, I, right around our deep scene dive here, 
um, he's standing at the top of the stairs and puts the glasses on and and is just looking around like, hey, what what are you doing here? What do you want me to do here? And for some reason, everything clicks in for me, and I just I I forget the rest of the performance. I, I forget that there are, that there are two people, and that's when I actually learn that it's actually only one person. So it should be uh, it should be exactly the reverse. Uh, but in in fact, uh, that's that's what makes it an even uh, greater joy to watch the movie a second time. Well, I think it's very smart that the first time we meet um, the unmarried mother or the, or Sarah Snook um, is as a man. And then we learn that because, uh, yes, yeah, so you look at her and you realize there's something odd about her. And then you realize, oh, she's a man who has has transitioned from being a woman. And the fact that that actually is an element of the story makes it so much more believable for me. Like if I was just yeah. trying to believe that Sarah Snook was playing a man, I would I think I would have had a hard harder time buying into it. Yeah, no, that's a really good point because we have to see the the difficulty of the transition. Yeah. Uh it it makes the makes the makeup uh land even better. Right, right. Peter Spierig did the uh, music. These Spierig brothers, they are They're talented dudes. They like doing as much as they can. Like you look at the credits and Peter's credited, he has five credits on this film and, and his brother Michael has four. Um, this is Peter's only credit that he got that his brother didn't also get. Otherwise, they both are credited as directing, writing, producing and visual effects. And that's really, I think, speaks to these guys and just kind of the nature of how they work. They've always been very heavily involved in a lot of the elements of their projects. And I think it's nice to to see that sort of passion with with um, young filmmakers. I don't know if, if they're still doing that. Uh, I haven't looked at the credits for the films they've done since. Um, uh, you know, I think most recently they just did Winchester, that Helen Mirren um, haunted house movie, um, mm-hmm. and Jigsaw, the latest uh, in the Saw franchise. Um, they might have um, less hands in those, but uh, I don't know. I I just love the fact, though, that they were so involved. You know, it goes back to their, I guess, their first, technically their first feature, Undead. Uh, did you happen to see this one? It strikes me as something that would be right up your alley. I didn't. Uh, well, it is also just under the uh, six-star rule on IMDb, but it is uh, the story of, a, of an Australian fishing village uh, that is overcome by meteorites that turn residents into the ravenous undead and watching clips of it today i thought well i cannot believe that this zombie movie is not uh i can't count that as in my catalog of of favorite movies because i haven't seen it we need to watch this movie the undead it looks like exactly the kind of movie um that we need to talk more about. Uh, and it is their first one. And that is the thing that, you know, it was interesting listening to actually Ethan Hawke talk about working with these guys for the the second time uh, now after Daybreakers was that, you know, he, he said, I, it's hard to count um, the undead, uh, you know, as their first film because, you know, it's working with your brother for, you know, on a five cent movie. Uh, and but but he could still see the thread between them maturing as directors and as a directing writing directing team uh, all the way back to that movie uh, as as they uh, they've matured together all through Daybreakers and and now to this so it was uh, it it really makes me curious uh, and that was two thousand three I mean that's a recent uh, you know 
relatively recent experience. Well, and and just to what we were saying earlier, not only did they produce, write, and direct that, they also were the editors, visual effects, and sound designers. Yeah. So it, it's just something that they are very heavily involved in. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm curious about it now. Um, and I really need to see Winchester so I can say I've seen... I've seen all their stuff. You know who'd be a great speakeasy guest? Who's that? The Spirit Brothers. That, they, I can't believe you didn't see that coming. Yeah, well, I should have. Intern? <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Are you lost? No, I'm looking for someone. Thanks. I'll just wait. Well, you know what they say about good things happening to those who wait. only the things left behind by those who hustle. I was thinking the exact same thing. What are the odds? What are the odds? You know, something, before we uh, move past our deep scene dive, um, I did have to say a few things. I love that there's a line in here uh, where she says, you son of a bitch. And he's just like, son of a bitch, that's funny. Uh, it's a great, <laughs> great line. That's and then great. the I'm My Own Grandpa song kicking on. Yeah. Which I have to say, that is probably uh, the worst bit of editing in the film because it, it's 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 an odd conversation that they have because so often it feels like they're the only people in the bar and you can't really tell that there are other people. Um, although every now and then you go, okay, wait, there's a person at that table in the back. But there's this shot, you know, we, we see this, this scene playing out where the two of them are talking. He's trying to get um, Sarah to come down into the basement with him so he can do this whole time travel thing. And then out of nowhere, we get a close-up of the buttons of the jukebox as somebody pushes a button. And then we cut to a, a, a medium shot of that person as he starts uh, the song up. And it's I'm My Own Grandpa. Before we cut back to them, we hear the song and everything. It's so awkwardly cut um, that it just it it always throws me out because it's it's just it's it, it's strange storytelling. I get why they're why they're doing it. My understanding is that song is actually mentioned in the all you all you zombies short story, right? Plus, it's a great song, um, uh, and <laughs> because it was it was actually reasonably contemporary, right? Um, like that song was. I think it was, uh, you know, according to Wikipedia, it, w- it was uh, first performed by Lonzo and Oscar in 1947. Yeah, it's only about uh, 10 years old by the so, time that, uh, that Heinlein wrote yeah. the book or the short story. But I think it was made uh, most popular, I'm going to say Willie Nelson. Uh, that's uh, the version a lot that I of always people. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people have covered that. Yeah. So Anyway, I just, I love that they do throw these jokes in, even the the chicken and the egg you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? The rooster. The you rooster. Know, it's <laughs> yeah, like they throw these little jokes in that are great for this time loop story. I just, I think it's, they're they clearly totally fit. having fun. How to do an award season? Uh, you know, it was a small movie. It never got a big uh, push here. So the awards, it was really um, uh, Australia-centric. It had 11 wins, 18 other nominations, other than uh, Toronto After Dark Film Fest, where it won Best Sci-Fi and Best Screenplay, plus a nod for Audience Award for Best Feature, which, believe it or not, it lost to Dead Snow 2, Red vs. Dead. Oh, God. I laugh at. I haven't seen it, so I can't really claim, but it's, I mean, it's Dead Snow 2, seriously. 
Uh, but otherwise, everything else was from uh, down under. Um, just a few notes. Ozzy, uh, the Australian Writers Guild, it won for the John Hind Award for Science Fiction. At the Australian Academy of Cinema and TV Arts, it won Best Cinematography, Best Editing, Production Design, and Lead Actress Sarah Snook. Um, and, you know, it, a bunch of other wins, it, you know, and nominations, but all Australia-based. And so it was it was clearly something that was well-loved down there. But unfortunately, I just uh, I don't think that it uh, had enough of a, a reach. Um, it makes me wonder, though, like, you know, we have the Academy Awards, but then we also have the Golden Globes, which are kind of, you know, not quite the prestige. And we have uh, all these different awards, but they have the, I mean, just the different groups. It was the Australian Academy of Cinema and Television Art Awards, the Australian Cinematographers Society, the Australian Film Critics Association Awards, the Australian Screen Sound Guild, the Australian Writers Guild, the Film Critics Circle of Australia, um, all of those. I want to know if Australians take any of them very seriously. We'll have to see what our Australian listeners say. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, is it like so many the, of them. Is it like yeah. the Spirit Awards and the, uh, you know, the, the Golden Schmoes? <laughs> are yeah, they, more they all serious? end up being Razzies in the end, you know, on Twitter. So don't, don't even bother. <laughs> uh, how did it do at the box office? Were you able to figure anything out here? Well, it's, it's hard to say exactly how much money Predestination cost because of the deal that Screen Australia struck to make it. They paid $5 million to fund three films, including this one. Um, so I have to, you know, if I work off the assumption that this film received a third of that, which is my best guess, that means it cost around 1.8 million, which is about 1.9 million in today's dollars. After premiering at South by Southwest, the movie opened in Australia, August 28th, 2014, and finally hit the U.S. January 9th, 2015. But as I was alluding to earlier, it didn't do much business here in the U.S., only grossing, uh, just over $68,000. Although overseas it made 5.4 million, which did give it an adjusted total of 5.5 million in today's dollars. That means the Spirit Brothers twisty little film landed with an adjusted profit per finished minute of about $38,000, making it a solid enough return on investment for Screen Australia. This uh, that actually blows me away because you feel uh, it would have been more popular? It should have been more popular. More people needed to have seen this movie. And I can't believe those numbers are so small. Well, this is one of those things where it it all boils down to who do you get on for distribution. Now, mm-hmm. um, after South by Southwest, I think it um, – oh, who picked it up um, for release here in the U.S.? I, I can't even remember who was credited at the beginning. But I just don't think – I mean, it was a January release. I, I don't think that it had – uh, much of a push. I know I saw the trailers on YouTube and stuff, but it's one of those movies that I think just did not get um, a wide a wide release. And it's really unfortunate because you're right, more people need to see this film. That's very disappointing. Uh, this was a real treat. I, it was a uh, just to watch it again. Uh, it it was a real treat to watch it as the uh, the final film of our little time travel series here. Mostly with Solo coming out, uh, all I can think about is they need to give the Spirit Brothers a Star Wars story because I have a feeling that Han, Luke, and Leia are probably each other's parents, <laughs> and that. That totally changes Star Wars. <laughs> I, I dare you to look at Star Wars the same way now. That's hilarious. And Chewie. Chewie's there too. <laughs> Chewie. They're all related. They're all parents They're of all each the other. They're all the same. 
Yes, they're all one. They're all Yoda. Genetic anomaly. They're all Yoda. <laughs> Uh, oh. uh, what, what do you think? You ready to uh, you ready to take it to the mat? Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've done on this show. Uh, or you can just swipe over in your show notes. You can tap the word flip, flick chart. It'll take you straight to this movie uh, where you can enter it into your own list and see how it stacks up to ours. Andy, where do we start? First off, Predestination or Numi's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I have to go Predestination. Pre- predestination, yeah. Oh, here we go. Predestination or time crimes? Predestination. That's, yeah. I mean, I feel like I sort of led with it that this is my favorite of the time travel movies we've talked about. I have to stick to that. Well, these are the two favorites of mine. I'm going to say Predestination. There you go. Predestination or Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan? Hmm. I'm say Star Trek II. Yeah, me too. Predestination or The World's End? Oh, Andy, Really? Really? Don't you have any control over these matchups? <laughs> How does this work again? <laughs> Why do we do this silly thing anymore? <laughs> oh my goodness! I'm, I'm gonna go with uh, I'm gonna go with the world's end. I am gonna go with predestination. Are you really? Yeah. How hard? Real hard? Hardish. You can twist my arm oh, if you need to. I'm not. I don't want to twist. Okay. All right. Let's do it. All Let's right. do it. Let's do it. Here we go. We're gonna do it. One. One Two, Two, three, three paper, paper, scissors. Paper. Damn. You took it. I did. I feel kind of guilty about it. <laughs> did, should that impact my decision at all? Jeez. Predestination or the Philadelphia story. I'm going oh, to Philadelphia Oh, look, you story. just move right on. I do. Oh, great. Okay. Philadelphia here. story. All right. You got it. Predestination or Seabiscuit. Absolutely Seabiscuit for me. Um. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Predestination or the social network. Social, social network. network. Predestination or Shaun of the Dead? Shaun of the Dead for me. Shaun of the Dead. Predestination or Live Free or Die Hard? I'm take some John McClane. Predestination. Oh, okay. Let's do it. One, One two, two, three. three. Rock. Rock. Scissors. Scissors. Rock. I don't feel bad about that. I don't feel bad about that. <laughs> well, good. Well, that leaves Predestination at 89 on our flick chart. Ooh. One spot above Time Crimes, which is at 90. All right. That feels okay. How'd this do on your personal list? This was uh, this was pretty good. They didn't come up against each other on my list. Um, time Crimes ended up higher on my list than Predestination, but if they came up with each other, I, I don't know. I feel like, I, I feel like there's going to be a constant battle between these two. I ended up at 414 out of 3967, which is about a 90% on my chart, so pretty high. Wow. Uh, I thought mine jumped uh, up to the top. I'm at 172 out of 1,024, and that's about an 83%. It feels low to me, but man, it hit something that it just couldn't couldn't pass. I don't even remember what it was, but I uh, uh, I just ranked little it Nikki. today. Yeah, it, right. <laughs> right. It was little Nikki at 171. So I, you know, if I go by the algorithm, that should be a four star. Doesn't feel good enough, Andy. Oh, not nearly oh, really? good enough. What does that mean, Pete? Well, it's going to be higher than a four star, but is it a five star, Andy? I ask you, is it a five star movie? I it is for me. Is it really? That yeah, helps. Me. Even with my little, uh, you know, I know some people give me crap for this, but even with little gripes that I might have, I think that um, there is. Uh, this is just such a uh, fascinating film that blows my mind every time I see it. I think the performances are so amazing. 
um, it really just, I mean, it's a film that I could get endless enjoyment from. So it's, it's a five star for sure. Okay. Then it's a five star for me too, because Andy peer pressure. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, that's right. You know, it, it, I was actually really worried about watching it because I've been talking about it. I've been excited to watch it again. And I was super worried sitting down last there over the weekend, uh, to, to watch this thing. And, uh, it didn't let me down uh, again. It just, you know. It was just really riveting. These performances are great, even through all the the flashbacks and talking and the sort of diner-esque vibe of the first 40 minutes or so. Uh, I just, I'm, I, it reels me in very, very early. Love this movie. Well, and it's a film that gets better, I think, on subsequent viewings when you know what's going on, because it allows you to now look at it from kind of um, the barkeep's perspective as he's kind of leading um uh um the unmarried mother on this journey and you're seeing all of these things play out knowing that it's all the same person right. and i just find it so fascinating me too me too yeah. well that that does it then uh for uh, our yes, yeah does. for our time travel series uh and so that begs the question andy where do we go from here we're going to be heading off a total different direction. We're going to be jumping into a fun, fun series with the Oceans series. We're going to kick it off with Oceans 11 from the 60s. Then we'll jump into Soderbergh's trilogy and ending with Oceans 8 shortly after it opens in theaters. And don't forget, we've got Solo coming up on the film board. Uh, this weekend so make sure you catch it opening weekend and then you'll be able to hear all of us talk about it uh, when we go live with that show on tuesday next week speaking of this weekend andy we got a sat mat coming up and you know what that means don't you oh our saturday matinee uh battle of the lists battle of the lists that's right with uh oceans 11 as the movie of choice um our patreon supporters get to go on and vote what we're going to be um, uh, doing our lists of and so the three options that they get to choose from are heist comedies music films with musicians not acting as musicians and movies with numbers in the title and the oceans films do not count so those are the options if you'd like to uh have a say in what we do our lists and hear the show itself Head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel and sign up for as little as a dollar a month. You can help us out and be a part of the show. You know, can I, can I, uh, I have a caveat Ooh, we like on that those. movies with numbers in the title. It, it can't be yeah. an oceans movie. Also can't be a sequel. Oh, so like John Wick two, like yeah. Sharknado five. Fine. Take I mean, there, there goes my whole list. I, I just so. needed, I felt like I needed to get that out of the way early. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay. Good. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, the next reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart, who runs the Instagram program over there. Ben Steerick, who helps out uh, there as well. Ben Lott uh, runs all things Twitter and the Blot Spot. Not to be confused with the Benot Spot. Uh, and, and of course, Ragtime Instrumental is the next reel theme, and it's by the good Eli Catlin. You can find him on his SoundCloud page where you can uh, you can access that very track. You can download it, you can put it on your uh, hearing device, and uh, you can listen to it over and over again. Love that harmonica. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. 
as Amazon always doeth. Amazon has a real special place uh, in its heart, in its uh, AI heart for this movie, wouldn't you say? Oh, it sure does. My yes, goodness. Does. My goodness. And a lot of people hate it. A lot of people hate <laughs> it. But it's not it. just because of a bad disc. No, no. In fact, it looks like the Amazon was able to deliver the movie that people wanted. And it turns out they didn't want what they got. They didn't know. Oh, my goodness. They go back and forth. The reviews are wonderful. You read them. One person says, I got this from the first frame. I understood. I knew it. It was a waste of my time. Next review. Oh, I, I didn't get it. It was confusing and boring. And I didn't understand any of it. I watched it three times. But, you know, uh, okay. But Joe Average, uh, who I think is, I, I don't have to tell you, is representative of the en- entire populace of Amazon reviewers. Joe Average himself writes, not good. No spoilers. I had to write a review because this is definitely not a four-star movie. It's probably a two- or three-star movie at best. I gave it a one-star in order to offset that insane rating. First off, I'm not a big Ethan Hawke fan. He surprised me in a few films, so I kept going back to the well. This is a chicken-or-the-egg cerebral movie that requires you to pay attention in order not to be utterly confused at the end. It's somewhat low-budget and has a very weak backstory. You and I could reenact this at my house, is basically what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Ultimately, all of this paying attention doesn't really pay off in the end for me. Wow. So Joe Average would like to reenact the movie at his house with you, if you know what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Joe Average. Well, well chosen moniker. Well chosen (laughs) moniker. Uh, well, I've got a one star by Captain Knucklebuster, mm. who says, How to be your own grandfather. A horribly ridiculous, boring guide on how to go f yourself. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> and there it is. There Four it people is. found it helpful. That's probably the best review of this movie you could, you could write. And you, you know what? You could give it one star, you could give it five stars. Works for all of them. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>